Titus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 3 to 7 tonight, and actually the first part of verse 8 as well. But I'll read through verse 11. Titus 3, the verses 1 to 11. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, as I said, we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 7, the third of the three grace passages in this letter to Titus. The first of those three grace passages is found in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, the second in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and the third one here in verses 3 to 7. And I want to begin by doing a little bit of comparison of these three passages. I think that it helps us to uh, bring to light the, the differences as well as the similarities between them. So if you look at this spreadsheet that I handed out tonight, um, I want to begin on the front side, on this side of the page, the longer side, and uh, note at the top there the uh, words that the three passages have in common. These words appear in all three of the passages. The name of God, the name Jesus Christ, the word Savior, and um, then also the words grace, hope, manifest, which is a couple of times translated as appear rather than manifest, but it's the same word, and the word life. And if you look at those uh, words, I think they fall really into two groups, don't they? They, uh, The names for God, and then words that pertain to his work of salvation for us. Uh, and so this is the, the basic theme of these three passages, God's salvation for us. Now, uh, 
the second thing that we want to do by way of comparison is just go to the third, we'll ignore the middle section there about the words found in two of the three passages, and we'll go to the third section. What's unique to each passage? The words that appear only in one of the passages, and these lists are longer. But the reason I put this down here is because if you read through those lists of words, I think you see the differences of focus between the three passages. And I've summarized what I think are the differences of focus between the three passages. So in the uh, first uh, passage in chapter 1, the emphasis is on the preaching of grace or the preaching of salvation. Paul talks a lot there about himself and about how he, the word was committed to him and how he was commanded to preach the word and so on. In the second passage, in chapter 2, the focus is on the purpose of grace. Remember that there the apostle says that the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And also that Christ has redeemed us and purified us so that we may be zealous for good works. So the purpose of grace in uh, the second passage in chapter 2 is so that we may live lives, lives of thankfulness to God. And here in Titus chapter 3, I think we have a focus on the power of grace, on what that grace of God has actually done. A more detailed look then at the salvation that the grace of God has brought to us. Now, if you uh, turn over, we'll come to that in a moment. We're going to begin to focus now on verses 3 to 7. And the first thing I want you to notice about these uh, four verses or five verses here is that the foundation of these verses is Trinitarian. The Apostle mentions God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit in these verses. And this is very common, by the way, in the Apostle Paul's letters. Without teaching us explicitly about the doctrine of the Trinity, he founds his teaching about the church and about salvation and about all the other matters that he brings to the, our attention in his letters. He founds that teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity uh, is, appears throughout his letters in this same kind of fashion that you find it here. That he refers to God, or to God the Father, he refers to Jesus Christ, and he refers to the Holy Spirit, all in the context of one uh, paragraph, or one uh, discourse on a particular subject. So that's the first thing. You have a Trinitarian foundation here. Verse 4, the love of God our Savior. Verse 5, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The other thing is what we see on the... On the um, 
reverse side of this page. And I think this is important. What we want to ask ourselves is the, a question about the grammar, really, of the sentence here. There are two sentences, actually. Verse 3 is a sentence, and then verse 4, and 5, 6, and 7 form another sentence, a, a fairly long sentence, verses 4 to 7. And we want to look at the grammar of verses 4 to 7 and ask, what is the main clause there? What's the subject? What's the main verb? And what's the direct object? And if you uh, uh, pay close attention, I think you can see that that main clause is just three words that occur uh, in verse 5. He saved us. He saved us. So that's the, the main thought of verses 4 to 7. He saved us. And all the other phrases and all the other clauses here in these verses modify in some way that central clause. He saved us. And that's what I've tried to outline here then on this page. And what you see is, first of all, you have the when of our salvation. When did God save us? When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Then we have the why of our salvation. Not by or because of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. And notice that all of these modify he saved us. When did he save us? When the kindness of love and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Why did he save us? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. How did he save us? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And then you have a couple of modifying uh, clauses, or a modifying clause and a modifying phrase there on that. And for what did he save us? That we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life with a subordinate clause there having been justified by his grace. So you have, he saved us, the when, the why, the how, and the for what of that salvation then in these four, five verses, or four verses. So the power of grace is the subject, the power of grace to save us. And what we're going to do as we look at the passage is look first at what he means by that main clause, he saved us. Then we're going to look at those modifiers, the when, the why, the how, and the for what of our salvation. And finally, we're going to look at the first part of verse 8. This is a faithful saying. Now, salvation, then, in the scriptural uh, teaching, is always a salvation from something and a salvation to something. And this is uh, uh, the way we use the term still today. If someone, for example, saves you from drowning, he is saving you from death, and he is saving you to a continued life. And the same is true of God's salvation of us. There is a salvation from something and a salvation to something. And the from is found in verse 3. 
We're going to pay close attention then to the salvation from what? That's described for us in verse 3. And the two is found in verse 7, which we're going to deal with in our second point. So in this first point, salvation from what? And here is the salvation from what? In verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's the from what. Paul describes there our former condition. Our condition according to our natural birth, our condition apart from the grace of God in salvation, our condition, therefore, as we would be still today if it had not been for the work of grace of God in us. And the condition also of all those who are in unbelief. Now look at what he says. This is not a complimentary description of our former condition. We were foolish. That is, we were without understanding. We were unwise. You find this word in a number of other passages in the scriptures. For example, when Jesus was talking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. He said to them, O foolish and slow to understand all that the scriptures have revealed about me, that is, about Christ. You are foolish, he says, because you have not understood what the scriptures said about me. In Romans chapter 1, verse 14, Paul opposes this Foolishness to wisdom. He says he learned from both the wise and the unwise, from both Greeks and Jews. Paul talks to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3 and says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should so soon depart from the truth? This is that foolishness. And this foolishness, of course, is... Uh, what we are by nature, it's the, the state of our minds apart from the grace of God. It's, it's, there's a, certainly a certain worldly wisdom that we may talk about. The scriptures even do that in James chapter 4. But the scriptures are talking about our lack of spiritual wisdom. And that lack of spiritual wisdom means that we do those things which are absolutely contrary to our own well-being, and to our own life. We refuse to see, or fail to see, what is uh, the way to life. And if we see what is the way to life, we refuse to take that way of life. We do, and call ourselves wise in the process, we do exact, what is exactly contrary to our own well-being, and to our own life. We bring ourselves into destruction. That's foolishness, a lack of understanding. 
The second word he uses is the word disobedient. And I think this is important because he uses this word, um, the opposite of this word, just two verses before, in verse 1, when he says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey. So he says, this is the obligation you have as Christians, but you also were once in the condition of those who are unbelieving, and that condition was a condition of disobedience. And he uses it also in chapter 1, verse 16, to describe those who contradicted the gospel. They professed to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And so he's really saying, you were in the same condition at one time as those who contradicted the gospel. You were like them. You perhaps at that time professed to know God, but in works you denied him. But at least you were abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The third uh, word that he uses is the word deceived. Our minds are darkened. We are deceived about the truth of God. We reject that truth. We think that we have a hold of truth, but what we really have a hold of is the lie. We are of our father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning. But this word, deceived, also means to be led astray. It's the same word that we find in Matthew 18, for example. We can turn there for a moment. Matthew 18, verses 12 and 13, where Jesus says, What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. So this deceived mind leads us into ways that take us from God rather than bringing us to God. The deceived mind leads us astray. Then he says, we also serve various lusts and pleasures. We talked about the word lusts in chapter 2, where Paul says that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. These are desires that are contrary to the word of God, contrary to his law. They're that coveting that God forbids. And they are a coveting of things that God tells us we may not desire, period. Or they are a coveting of things that are good in themselves, but we desire them in the wrong way or for the wrong reasons or in the wrong proportion. We desire them more than we, for example, desire God. Those are also lusts. And pleasures, the word pleasure here is, uh, in the Greek, is the word from which we get our word hedonism. And these are worldly pleasures then. James talks about these worldly pleasures in chapter 
4, verses 1 to 3. Again, I want to take a moment to uh, refer to that passage because I think it's a very important passage to understand these, these pleasures. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. That's the word that Paul uses here. These worldly pleasures, the delight we have in things that are simply wrong, forbidden by God. And notice that he says about these lusts and pleasures that we serve them. He doesn't just say we have such lusts and we seek such pleasures, but he says we serve them. We are enslaved to them. They dominate our life. They dominate our heart. We are filled with lusts and we are constantly pursuing worldly pleasures, ungodly pleasures. And then finally he says that we live in malice, not finally, we live in malice and envy. Malice is of course an evil will towards others. Not desiring the good of another, but desiring the evil of another. Having evil intentions towards another. And envy, envy is a a very uh, terrible sin. In... um, his uh, book, Synonyms of the New Testament, Trench talks about this idea of envy. And what he says about this envy is that what it is basically is uh, the hatred of good in another. We see that someone has something that we wish for ourselves. But it's not just uh, seeing that he has good, it's then wishing that he did not have the good that he has. So, for example, we may see that a man has um, a, a gift for Uh, understanding the scriptures. But instead of delighting in his gift, and instead of seeking uh, to obtain that gift as far as possible for ourselves, we instead denigrate it in him and wish that he did not have it. We want to bring him down to our level. That's what this word Envy, this particular Greek word, envy, means here. It's this uh, desire, and I'm sure if you think about it, you can see this in certain occasions in yourself, 
that you see someone who has a gift that is superior to yours, you would like to be like him, but instead of imitating him and, and seeking to be like him, you seek to bring him down to your level. You, you talk uh, badly about him to undermine his reputation, or you denigrate the gift itself, or you uh, say other evil things about this person because you can't stand it, that he is better than you. And he contrasts this envy then with what he calls emulation. Emulation sees good in another, admires it, and tries to copy it. Envy sees good in another and wants to take it away from him, to bring him down to our level. You see how malicious, how wicked this envy is. And the final thing that he says then is that we are hateful and hate one another. We are detestable. We are, in the corruption of our sins, detestable to God and very often detestable to other men as well, sometimes even to unbelieving men. And we live in hatred towards others. Instead of loving our neighbor and loving our enemy as God commands, we hate our neighbor, we will his evil, we delight in evil that happens to him. These are the things then that he, Paul says about our former condition. He says, this is how you once were. This is how you once lived. That's what life apart from grace is like. It's desperately bad and wholly miserable. But notice also that he connects that verse 3 with the preceding. The verse 3 begins with the word for, for we ourselves. And he says in verses 1 and 2, the context to which that refers, that you must be subject to rulers, you must obey, you must be ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Why? For, he says, you were once different from that. You were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, and so on. But, verse 4, when the kindness and love of God appeared, he saved us. In other words, God has saved you from that condition from that misery, from that wickedness that is described in verse 3. That's the from what. And this is a great reason then for thanksgiving that our God has saved us from this wickedness. So let's turn our attention then to verses 4 to 7. And look at the when, the why, the how, and the for what of that salvation. The when is when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man 
appeared, or when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man was manifested. And he's not talking there, as we've noticed before about uh, Titus 2, about the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. You could perhaps talk about that as a manifestation of the kindness and love of God, but that's not Paul's reference here. Paul is referring instead to the preaching of the gospel. That's when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. When you heard the preaching of the gospel, he's saying, that's when his kindness and love appeared. And notice how then that magnifies the kindness and love of God. They were living, as Paul describes in verse 3, in foolishness, disobedience, deception, lusts and pleasure, malice and envy, hate towards one another. And while they were in that condition, God showed them kindness and love. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, I think it is, he loved us while we were sinners. That's the magnitude of his kindness and love. That in that horrible wickedness in which we lived, with pleasure, he nevertheless manifested to us kindness and love. He came to us preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second uh, part of this, uh, these verses then is the why of that salvation. There are two things that he says about it. First the negative and then the positive. The why of that salvation is not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's not of us. And that must be very obvious from the description that we find in verse 3. We were living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, but God manifested his love toward us. Not by works of righteousness. And, and if you like, think about works of righteousness which men sometimes claim for themselves. I don't think what Paul has in mind here is necessarily works of righteousness as defined by God's law, but works of righteousness as, as men themselves might define them. And say, and say the, the works which the Pharisees did, which they considered works of righteousness, and some of which were in harmony, at least externally, with the law of God, some of which were not. But all those works of righteousness of which men like to boast or which they approve in themselves or which they seek to do because they think it's their obligation to do them, and it certainly is so. But he says, whatever works of righteousness you may be thinking about, don't relate those to your salvation. Not 
by works of righteousness which you have done. Whatever those works of righteousness are, whatever you may think of your own works, do not say to yourselves that God will save you because of those works of righteousness. It is not by works of righteousness. They may be righteous or they may be unrighteous. If they're done apart from grace, they are certainly unrighteous. If they're done in grace and by grace, they are righteous, but not by works of righteousness, either true or false works of righteousness. You are not saved in that way or for that reason. It is according to his mercy. And again, you see how astonishing this grace of God is because his mercy came to us in our wickedness. He looked on us in our wickedness, in our miserable, fallen, corrupt condition, and he had compassion on us. That's the why of our salvation. God had compassion on us in our wickedness. Thirdly, we have the how of our salvation. And again, there are two things here. The washing and regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is, of course, what we call today usually the being born again, the new birth, or the being born from above, as you find in um, other places in the scriptures. It's that work by which God uh, gives to us new life, the life that is in our Lord Jesus Christ, and by which he begins to conform us to the image of Christ by which we become again his children. And this regeneration is, of course, a rebirth that is spiritual. It's not a physical rebirth. Jesus made that clear to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It's a spiritual rebirth. And it is the rebirth of one who is dead in sin and who, according to his natural birth is utterly opposed to God and has no life in himself. And God takes that corrupt, fallen, dead creature and he gives it life. He makes it a new creature. He gives to it that life which he first gave to Christ and which Christ then gives to us. Now this regeneration is called a washing. It is the washing of regeneration. We were corrupt. We were filthy and defiled in our sins. Unfit, therefore, to live with the holy God. But in his regeneration, God washes away that corruption, that filth of our sins and makes us clean. Baptism is a sign of this washing of regeneration. 
the washing away of our sins. That goes with that regeneration that we have in Christ Jesus. That's the first part of the how of our salvation. The second part is the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think we have to be careful that we understand that word uh, renewing correctly because we sometimes take it to mean a kind of refreshing or um, a, a cleaning up sort of thing. So for example, you might see a house that's kind of dilapidated on the outside and the paint is peeling and it's uh, perhaps got some, some trim falling off and it, it, it looks kind of rough and shabby. And you fix up the, the broken trim and you, you repaint it and you call it renewed. That's not the renewing that we have here. This is a making new. A making something altogether new out of what was old. A making of a new creature who is no longer earthly but heavenly, who is no longer dead but living, who is no longer defiled with sin but holy. And this renewing then, this remaking comes through the Holy Spirit, that it is the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And when God does this work of renewing, he gives us the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and he does not give him by measure, he does not give him stintingly with a close-fistedness that guards carefully the treasure of the Holy Spirit, but he pours him out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. It's not through lack, then, of the grace of the Holy Spirit that we are still sinful. The grace of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on us abundantly, unstintingly, by a generous and gracious God. So that's the how, this regeneration, washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we have the for what. And that's in verse 7, that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, regeneration, we've already said, gives us life, but it also gives us hope of life, because that life is not perfect from the beginning. Rather, regeneration, we might say, is a process and we, having that life, having the guarantee for the future, hope for the perfection and abundance of that life in glory. Life both of body and soul in the heavenly places. And he has then appointed us and saved us to be heirs of that life. He's promised it to us, in other words, in the same way that a man, when he makes a will, promises to his children or to his heirs his inheritance. So God, as Hebrews 8 teaches us, has made a will and has 
promised in that will to his heirs this life. And now the testator, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, has died. And the will is being executed. And the heirs are receiving that life and will continue to receive it until that life is perfect and complete. So we are given this promise of life, a promise which God will not go back on. And he says, you have this hope of life now. And it's a sure hope. It's not the kind of doubting hope that you have when you say, I hope so. It's the kind of hope that says, I know it is so. And I long for the day of its fulfillment. But one more thing then about that. He says that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs. So he slips justification in there as well. And that justification is, of course, the foundation for our becoming heirs. We have to be justified in Christ before we can become heirs of eternal life, before we can, in fact, be born again. God will not give to us the grace of salvation apart from this work of justification. Our guilt, our damn worthiness in the judgment of God has to be the first thing that is removed. If that damn worthiness is not removed, the justice of God will require that we be everlastingly condemned to hell. Having been justified by his grace, then, we become heirs of eternal life. And notice again that he says it's by grace. That is, it's not by works. It's by grace, by the free gift of God. So as you look at those verses 4 to 7, you see that again, Paul covers a huge amount of theological ground. (coughs) Beginning on a Trinitarian foundation, God our Savior, Christ our Savior, the Holy Spirit whom he pours out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. He gives to us salvation. The kindness, love, grace, mercy of God. appear to us in the preaching of the gospel. Justification comes to us from the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is poured out on us in abundance. And from that Holy Spirit we receive regeneration and sanctification and renewing. And because of that Spirit and the work of salvation, we have an inheritance promised to us, an inheritance of eternal life, and therefore a sure hope while we are living here in the midst of death. This whole schema of salvation is laid out before us then. Notice then that as we look at verses 3 to 7, Paul begins in the past This is what you were. 
This is verse 3. What you were in the past was given over to sin. He describes the present. He has saved us. He has regenerated us. He has poured out His Spirit on us. And so on. And He points us to the future. You have the hope of eternal life. And you could lay this all out in chronological order. Paul begins not with the election this time, as he does in Ephesians 1, for example, but he begins with the kindness and love of God, which are, in a sense, even prior to his uh, election. In love, he predestined us, Ephesians 1 says. The kindness and the love of God. Because of the kindness and love of God, Christ our Savior comes into the world. That kindness and love of God then are manifested to us in the preaching of the gospel. As the gospel is preached, God pours out his spirit upon us. When the spirit comes to us, we are washed with the washing of regeneration and we are renewed. That washing of regeneration and renewing give to us salvation. That salvation gives to us the hope of eternal life. That hope of eternal life is fulfilled in the everlasting inheritance. The one thing that Paul does not tell us exactly where it fits into this chronology is justification. Except that he says it precedes the hope of eternal life. But if you look at other scriptures, you can place this justification too in the order of salvation that we have here. It goes, first of all, with election, with predestination. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Paul says in Romans 8, verse 33. It is accomplished in Christ our Savior in the shedding of his blood 2,000 years ago. As Romans 5, verse 9 says. Romans 5, verse 9. That verse reads, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And it is also given to us then in the pouring out of his spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11. A wonderful verse, by the way. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now one thing more before we close, and that is the beginning of verse 8. I'll be very brief here. Paul says this is a faithful saying. What he means is that whole saying of verses 4 to 7. That's the faithful saying. This faithful saying is referred to numerous times in 1 Timothy, three times, 1 verse 15, 3 verse 1, 4 verse 9, and once more in 2 Timothy 2. So this idea of the faithful saying is common to the pastoral epistles. It's a saying, it's a 
faithful saying because it's trustworthy. And because it's trustworthy, it's worthy of acceptance by all. That's what Paul's saying. He says to Timothy, this is a faithful saying. That is, it's worthy of acceptance. It's a trustworthy saying. I've spoken the truth to you. It's a truth that's established in the faithfulness and truth of God himself. And therefore, Timothy and Titus, you can speak confidently regarding it. Therefore, these things I want you to affirm constantly. Preach this gospel, he says to Titus. Remind the saints of this faithful saying. Keep on talking about it. Don't stop. It's needed. We all need it every day. Hear the gospel of the salvation of God in Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. May God bless his word.